What if I broke into somebody's home and stole a bunch of their valuable things? And they knew I did it. And when they confronted me, I just kind of laughed it off. Said, I'm sorry. I'm sure you'll forgive me. You're a loving person, aren't you? What if they did just accept that? What if they invited me over to dinner that evening and even let me stay over? And I stole some more of their things. Now, if you're on the outside looking into that, would you say that that person was doing the right thing, that they were being a loving person, or would you think they were foolish? If I'm being honest, I would think they were a fool, and I'd probably even lose a little bit of respect for them. Let's try it this way. If a pastor came up here, if a pastor came up here in front of our church and stated that the grace of God is such that you can do whatever you want, whatever feels good to you, regardless of the impact to yourself or the impact to others, and it's okay because the sacrifice that Jesus made covers that. How would that hit you? All right. Is God's grace a license to sin? That's a lot to think about, and we're going to dig into that a little bit more this morning. But first, I want to welcome you to Blue Ash Community Church. We've got a beautiful morning out there with nice rain, coming off of a second year in a row, Michigan beating Ohio State. So we're going to kind of reclaim this weekend <laughs> for God's glory. No, I'm joking. i got a friend here who's very happy about those wins. <clears throat> If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name's John. I serve here on the prayer team and some other areas. And one thing I can promise you with 100% certainty is I will not break into your house and steal any of your things. So this morning we're going to continue in our series, Urgent, where we're taking a look at how the writers of these books urge us into our calling. Um, today we're specifically working through the book of Jude. And now a large number of scholars believe that Jude, or Judah as he would have been called, was the half-brother of Jesus. And we're going to begin working this morning out of page 1995 in your Bible, if you want to turn there now in the Disciples Bible. Again, as Craig mentioned, if you don't have one, they're in the back. If you're joining us online, you can head over to baccbible.com, fill out that information, and we'll get one to you. They're absolutely free, um, and we'd love for you to have them. Each series, we also have a card with a reading plan for that series. That's also available in the back, and each week we kind of speak out of something you're going to be reading the following week in that, in that reading plan. So, um, I just want to pray one more time before we go. This, this has been a wonky morning. There's been mic issues and tech issues and stuff like that, so I just want to kind of calm that down. Um, God, we just praise you. We praise your name. We know that you don't, you don't need slideshows and microphones and speakers uh, to do the work that you have uh, and to reach the people that you want to reach. So, we just claim this space for you this morning, God. This is anointed ground and anointed time for you, and we just invite you here, God, to meet with any of us that you want to meet with today. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, as I mentioned, we're going to be working through the letter of Jude this morning, and Jude can be broken down into three parts. He starts with an opening charge that we should keep the faith, that we should defend the faith that we have in Jesus and defend the teachings of Jesus. Next, he goes into a larger section that warns us against dangers of false teachers infiltrating the church. Finally, he ends it with another charge on what we should do about it, what the church should do about it. There's a sense of urgency in his writing, and you can tell that he's very passionate about it. Here's an excerpt, actually, from the Your Disciples Bibles, 
uh, on the message of Jude. The message of Jude is alien to many in today's world because Jude emphasized that the Lord will judge evil intruders who are attempting to corrupt the church. The message of judgment strikes many people today as intolerant, unloving, and contrary to the message of love proclaimed elsewhere in the New Testament. So this is some light stuff today. Are we all right? I, I say on the contrary that it is a message of love, and I'm interested to see if you feel the same way. So let's jump right in. In, in Jude verses 1 and 2, he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, that is, those who have accepted Jesus, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied by you. I love how Jude starts this letter. He he, uh, here is who we, we believe is Jesus' brother, introducing himself humbly as a servant of Jesus, right, and the brother of James. Now, James, that would carry some weight because James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem at the time, but I don't think it's unintentional that Jude refers to himself as Christ's servant here instead of as his brother. Keep in mind as we move forward that to be a servant means to serve. It is to be in submission to another, or put it another way, it's to be under the mission of another. Jesus' brothers did not follow him during his ministry on earth. In fact, the Bible gives us evidence that they ridiculed him. It was after his resurrection that they were, they were converted. Here, Judah is saying that he is serving the will of Jesus. And what is the will of Jesus? Let's go further. Verses 3 and 4. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, in other words, he's saying, I wanted to write about how awesome it is that we're all saved and we're going to get to spend eternity with God in heaven. He continues, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered for the saints once for all. But instead, I need to write to you and say, stick with it. So what does the phrase contend for mean? Merriam-Webster defines contend as to strive or vie in contest or rivalry or against difficulties, to struggle. What is Jude's audience in contest with? What is that struggle? Verse 4, for some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. What does Jude mean here? Sometimes when I'm Trying to figure out what Jude means here, I might look at the message, which is a more modern paraphrase of the Bible written in, in modern language. Here's what he says in this verse. What has happened is that some people have infiltrated our ranks, and our scriptures warn this would happen, who beneath their pious skin are shameless scoundrels. Their design is to replace the sheer grace of God with sheer license, which means doing away with Jesus Christ, our one and only master. It seems there were people teaching in the community a doctrine that was flying in the face of the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus had already warned us they would come and that these false teachers were marked for judgment long ago. This is very similar to the false teachers that Peter warned us about. We read in 2 Peter a couple weeks ago. So I don't know about you, but when I see God repeating himself in the scriptures, I start to pay very close attention to that. Next, Jude spends a little time reminding us of God's righteousness. So let's look at verses 5 through 7. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. This is a reference to that golden calf and 
that they erected to worship in the place of God. And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Speaking about Satan and the legion of angels who followed him in rebellion against God. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And this is a nod to that crowd that wanted Lot to send the angels out of his house so that they could have their way with him. I'm going to speak for myself here. This is an area where I often struggle with God's goodness, right? Like these reminders of his judgment. It's easy for me to write this version of God off as like some Old Testament angry old dude who was replaced by this like warm and fuzzy Jesus that wants to hug everybody. But God is never changing, right? God was goodness and love before creation. He was goodness and love at creation. He is now, and he will be forever. Judah's expressing this consistency of God by referring to these past examples. To him, there is no doubt that God is forever the same. We will need to reconcile God's judgment with God's love. So in verse 8, Jude goes on. In the same way, these people, the false teachers... Relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. The actions of these people reflect their hearts, and their hearts are not after God's heart. It's important to keep in mind here that these are false teachers, not because they somehow got some piece of theology wrong, right? There's many pastors that we disagree with, the theologians that are very well respected on multiple ends of many stories and books in the Bible don't agree on things. These are people who, because of their heart posture, they're not going after God's heart or leading people astray. You see, the time that this letter was written, the followers of Jesus were largely dealing in a culture impacted by the Roman Empire. The feeling was that to get ahead in this society, you had to participate in the customs of this pagan world. Tradespeople in this society were members of guilds. So guilds, think about guilds as a cross between like a labor union and a animal house style fraternity, like throwing wild parties and togas. And there was pagan worship, wild drunken parties, sexual activities of various natures outside of God's design. And the expectation was participation in this or to be outcast or left out. This often meant choosing to follow Jesus and facing losing their job and the provision they need with their family or participate in a world and deny the teachings of Jesus. When Jude says that these false teachers were denying Jesus Christ, they were rejecting the authority and slandering these glorious ones, these people that were choosing to follow Jesus. He's speaking towards an attitude that was coming up among some in the church that encouraged people to participate in these ways of the world. And get this, they were teaching it was okay to do this because the sacrifice that Jesus made covers it. That we can do whatever we choose to do because Jesus died for us. Now, I want to flesh that out a little bit more, and I will here in a little bit. But first, let's hear some more of what Jude says about these false teachers. Verse 10. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things, they are destroyed. He compares them to Cain, who defiled God's command around sacrifice and committed the first murder. He compares them to Balaam, who skirted God's command for profit. 
He compares them to Korah's rebellion, which was an attempt to defy God's appointment of Moses and Aaron as leaders. In all these instances, God's righteous judgment was the consequence, and the result was separation from him. He continues in verse 12 and 13. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feast, as they eat with you without reverence. Love feasts were agape meals that believers gathered in communion with each other to share their faith and, and to just be together. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. In verse 16, he goes on, These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. Do we know anyone who tends towards being discontent or grumbling? How about anyone who lives according to their own desires, who's arrogant? Think about, like, narcissism, who's narcissistic. How about anyone who uses flattery and compliments to manipulate situations for their own advantage? Maybe sometimes we are anyone. There are certainly times when I've fallen into these behaviors. So how do we reconcile the righteous judgment of God that Judah's warning about here with the message of love taught by Jesus? Let me ask that again. How do we reconcile the righteous judgment of God with the love of Jesus? We need to remember that God's promises through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a promise that is available to everyone. There is no one good enough to earn it, and there is no one so bad that they don't have access to it. I'll say that again. There is no one good enough to earn it, and there is no one that's so bad that they don't have access to it. So how is the blackness of darkness reserved for these people forever? How were these people designated for that judgment long ago? God knew what they would choose, that they would choose to serve themselves instead of Jesus, that they would deny Christ as their master. How are they denying Christ? The warning of judgment frequently comes directly from Jesus' mouth. This is a part that I tend to forget. Right? When I think about the New Testament and the Gospels and stuff, I remember all the love quotes and the scripture that we repeat. I tend to forget these, these places where Jesus has actually been himself and confirmed his judgment. So let's, let's take a look at some of these places where Jesus himself speaks in these ways. In Luke 12, 1, Jesus says, Be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Remember, a little leaven can ruin the whole batch. Jesus is saying, beware of false teachers who live as hypocrites. This is equivalent to those who do not live what they teach or say one thing, but do the opposite themselves. In Mark 12, 38 through 40, Jesus said, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplace, the best seat in the synagogues, the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. How about the sin of pride? In Matthew 6, 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. There are many, many more examples in the New Testament Gospels where we can see that Jesus himself backs up this righteous judgment of God. Because God is holy, he cannot tolerate sin, and, be, and our sin separates us from God, becoming a barrier to fellowship with him. 
we are supposed to avoid sin, but if you're like me, you know this can be hard because we are sinful beings. As much as we don't want to, we still sin in our daily lives because of the sinful nature that was injected into us at the fall. But, right, nobody wants to sit here and be like, man, he's calling me still a sinner. So, but, hopefully we have chosen to follow Jesus and accept his gift of salvation in our lives. That is the key. Hopefully we have chosen to follow Jesus and accept his salvation in our lives. And when we do this, we are saints, the ones who are kept, not sinners, even though we sin. It is the Holy Spirit in us that breaks down that barrier from sinner to saint. God knows that we cannot do it on, his own, on our own, and he has provided a way for us to remain in relationship with him. And we have to move towards him, not away. These false teachers that Judah is warning against have decided to use the fact of God's grace as a license to continue sinning, to deny Christ and not only move away from him, but to lead others away from him as well. Let me share a personal example where I've seen this show up in my own life. There's a, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is close. There's a member of my family, a man, who has an extensive history of abusing other members of my family. The abuse was verbal, is physical, and it was certainly mental. This man is a narcissist. He frames all interactions with the rest of the family around how it will benefit, impact, or serve him. And I can remember a number of times uh, throughout the years where this person would claim that, that he asked God for forgiveness and he believed in God. He would claim that he prayed for God for numerous things, and coincidentally, I never heard him mention a prayer for anyone but himself. There have been zero indications or signs of evidence of Christ's work in this man's life, and there have been no signs of a desire to turn or repentance. This man in my family is an example of using Christ's promise of salvation as a grace and grace as a currency to continue sinning and not seeking an authentic relationship with his creator. These are the lessons of the false teachers. Jude's own brother James teaches that our actions should be a natural outflow of the relationship that we have with God and of the sanctification that will naturally occur as we move towards him. Now, sanctification, you know, Craig said that sounds like a really churchy word. Sanctification is the process of us being purified and made holy. This is not something that we do. It is a symptom of us moving closer to God. So how does Jude instruct us as the church to respond and react to this? Let's take a look at how Jude concludes his letter in verses 20 through 25. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, him who's able to do this, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. These are instructions for us, church. Now, does this mean she would just go around and start shouting condemnation and pointing out people's sins and how bad they are? 
The answer is no. We shouldn't do that. Should we, should we let people know that we think they're going to hell? No. Jude tells us here to leave the judgment to the only real judge, that we should have mercy on those who waver, to save others by snatching them from the fire, not by pointing out that they're heading there, right? The message paraphrases uh, verses 22 and 23 this way. Go easy on those who hesitate in the faith. Go after those who take the wrong way. That is, go after and bring them back. Be tender with sinners, but not soft on sin. The sin itself stinks to high heaven. That is truly being like Jesus. Can't we all agree that he, that Jesus, is tender with sinners? Right? Consider this diagram for a moment. The big circle is representative of all humanity. And that big J in the center of the universe, that's Jesus. Now, look at all these dots. These dots are representative of various people in their closeness or distance from relationship with Jesus. Who would you consider is under the covering of God's grace and promise of salvation here? Who of these dots would you consider is too far from God, too out of relationship with him? Let's change it up a little bit. Now let's see these dots as arrows. The green arrows represent folks that are moving toward Jesus, moving toward in relationship with him. The red arrows represent people who are denying Christ, who are moving away from him. Does this change your opinion of who is covered by God's grace and who is not? The truth is, we should not even be concerned with this. We should not be spending any time judging who is too far away or who is close to God and who is saved. That is God's job, and he has not assigned that to us. Let me say that again. That judgment is God's job, and he has not assigned that to us. Jude says that he is the one who is able to keep people from stumbling and to make them stand in the presence of his glory. Our job is to be tender on them and chase after them. Don't we want to be a church known for being tender on sinners, known for going to the missing? Right? Don't we want to be a church that is known for our strong desire to see everyone we come in contact with have a genuine relationship with Jesus, loving the marginalized? Don't we want to be a church that is known for sharing the teachings of Jesus, being against sin, but doing it in such a way that everyone we meet feels loved and knows that we want the goodness that God has for them, that there is a place prepared for them in heaven. And that goodness far outweighs any enjoyment that we can get from these earthly pleasures. That goodness is living as God's kids. We should be that church, and God has uniquely gifted this body to be his hands and feet in the communities of Blue Ash and beyond. I have a friend who, who tries to live by the mantra that he is spare change in God's pocket. Like, isn't that a beautiful picture of what this church can be? We have opportunities to share God's promise with folks at work. We have opportunities in our neighborhoods, at kids' sporting events, in the shop, in the checkout line at Kroger. We should be the church out there. You may have heard me say this before, but if, if we let Sunday morning be the totality of our faith experience, we are missing the full goodness of what the church can be. 
God has not called us to come here on Sunday morning and expect that Andy Rainey or whoever is teaching up here is solely responsible for the ministry of Blue Ash Community Church. That's not practical. It's not fair to them. And to be frank, it's not biblical, right? Sunday is practice. Our small groups and our discipleship groups are places for us to encourage each other and practice with each other. We often have events here after service to further build our faith and practice partnering with the Holy Spirit. It is not an accident that these events are called trainings. We are practicing and training to build the skills and comfort we need to be the big C church out there. And isn't that the church that we want to be? We're going to be taking up our offering in a few minutes. Before we do, I want, to, I want you guys to grab those connect cards that Craig spoke about. And I want to go over a couple more next steps with you. And the first next step is, um, we say this every week, but accept Jesus for the first time. Maybe you're sitting here saying, I don't feel like I'm a part of any church. Maybe you're sitting here saying, um, wait a minute, I do want that goodness, that, that room in heaven that God has for me, and I want to learn more about that. We're going to have prayer teams up front, and um, just come up and, and maybe confess that to them. They'll be happy to pray for you. Um, if you feel, maybe, maybe uh, next step number two is you feel unprepared to be the church out there. Consider how you can plug into more of the training and practice, right, that we offer here. Small groups, trainings, being around others just through serving. All these are ways to start building up your faith amongst other believers. Um, Next up, number three, I would say pray this week about where you maybe feel called to share God's love the rest of this week, where you might feel called to be the church out there, outside of Sunday morning in this building. And then, again, just receive prayer. We've got the prayer teams coming up. Um, maybe you feel like you've used God's grace as a license. Maybe you feel like you've hurt somebody uh, um, through this way, or you've been hurt by someone in this way. Come see our prayer teams. They'd love to pray for you about that. Um, if you have any specific prayer requests, we have a prayer wall back there. Um, you can write on the card. If you want people to see it, you can leave it faced out. Prayer team will pray over it. Uh, if you don't want people to see it, you can face it towards the wall. Our prayer team looks over those things and prays through them every week. You can also write those prayer requests down on your Connect card as well. Um, ushers can come forward and collect a prayer cards. <clears throat> Our memory verse for this series is 1 Peter 2, 9, and I just love how it ties to the, the message that um, we're sharing today. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Isn't that beautiful? So, for communion this morning, I want to share a little picture about how this process, this, this thing that Jesus did with the disciples at the Last Supper would have hit them in another way, another way that they would have recognized what was going on in that moment. So during biblical times, when a young man wanted to marry a woman, he would accompany his father to that chosen woman's house, and they would share bread and, and break bread together. And she and her father would be present, and they'd negotiate a steep bride price, steep, right? Think a dowry. There was a dowry here. The money or physical items that the woman's father would ask for in exchange for giving up 
his valuable daughter. Then the young man's father would hand his son a cup of wine. The son, in turn, would offer it to the woman and say, this cup I offer you. In effect, he was saying, I love you, and I offer you my wife, my life. Will you marry me? And if she drank it, she sealed their engagement. She accepted his life and gave him hers. Then he would go back and prepare a place for her at his father's house. Jesus has prepared a place for us, and by eating this bread and drinking this cup, we're accepting his life and giving him ours. Can we all do this together, church?